Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 21. Last week looked at Jesus' triumphal entry. This week, it takes a kind of an emotional turn to Jesus cleansing the temple. I want to uh, introduce the remainder of chapter 21 in Matthew's gospel as the devolving rejection of Christ. It's kind of a negative theme to see how Christ is coming uh, into scenarios of rejection as he works his way through the Passion Week that will kind of take its uh, pinnacle point at the cross and then resurrection. The, the way that I'm going to lay out the next several sermons is really outline points to fill this concept out with people who are rejecting and people who are receiving Christ. You have people who are rejectors and you have people who are the remnant or the shining hope of receiving the Lord. People are desperate in general to believe that things are getting better when the Bible promises things are getting worse. Reality, if you look at it you know, with any kind of clear consciousness, you recognize that things are devolving. Things are getting weirder and worse and less moral and more abstract and strange in our culture. People want it to get better. People are crying out for it to get better. Even secular people are saying it can evolve. It can, we can do much better. We can end hate, end crime, end hurt, end sickness, death, unfairness. All these things can go away with the social activism movements. But really, it's denying the sin in our world, the effects of sin, the effects of the depravity in the human heart that can only be solved by one person, one solution, one gospel, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I mean, there's one church, and Christ died for his bride. And people say they want it to get better, but ironically, they're rejecting the one solution for betterment, which is Christ. Christ is the one that can solve sin. They push Christ away. The Bible is promising a devolving world, and yet people are grasping for substitute saviors. They want the economy to get better. They want people to advance intellectually, metabolically, anatomically. And there are medical advancements. There are scientific, um, scientifically great things that are exponentially getting um, at least better in terms of technology. There are things to be amazed about, but in the midst of being amazed, there is this increased devolu- devolution of society. People are looking for breakthroughs with AI technology. People are wanting to merge tech with the human psyche, with the human mind. I heard about somebody saying, look, you know, they're planting, you know, chips in monkeys now. They're trying to figure that out. Um, Some way to make it better, some way to solve what's wrong, to to get some sort of societal or cultural or universal breakthrough. That's what I sense when I listen to different things in our world. I was sitting with somebody at lunch and he introduced me to ChatGPT. I know that's been around a little while, but it's kind of spooky. He, he said, hey, he said to his phone, give me a 500-word sermon on the Trinity. And in eight seconds, there it was. And it wasn't half bad. 
but weird, weird and, and scary. And maybe technology will be good for um, getting the word out and Bible translations and things like that. There's probably an upside, but there's also some scary things going on. There's a lot of fascination with aliens right now, and you hear about it in the news and different people standing up and saying there's this paranormal thing or this um, sort of blob out in the, you know, out in the atmosphere, and that must mean something. But I think that it's a person's desire, it's society's desire for some sort of evolution, some sort of betterment, some sort of higher life existence that's out there that we're becoming or we're going to engage instead of seeing things in terms of sin and redemption and Christ that solves what's wrong with image bearers that need to be made right with God. People want climate change. People want to to act like they're in control of the destiny of our planet, sort of a reverse Babylon mindset where they're being godlike in their own minds instead of letting God be God and sovereign. All resolution is found in Christ. All resolution to everything that's going wrong in our world is found with Christ. And 2,000 years ago, Christ marched into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry and people shouted hosannas. They wanted Christ, or at least they thought they did. And then a day later, Jesus turns the tables literally from praises of man to a house cleaning in the temple. He goes into Jerusalem, and this is sort of a picture of the world to say, the world says it wants a savior, but does it really? And Jesus diagnoses what's really wrong, what needs to really be shaken up, and that is for society to come face to face with its own sin. And so Jesus cleanses the temple, and it's a picture of man's greatest need to be disrupted in their own flesh, to see what's wrong, and to say, I need grace, I need a savior, on Christ's terms, with no conditions. Well, this whole section is going to be built out with two groups. You're going to have people who receive a message like that and people who reject a message like that. By and large, the the masses will reject Christ. And we need to know that. Things are going from bad to worse. Things are becoming more sinfully, um, increasing so, and people are rejecting Christ. And then you have people who are the remnant who will believe People will want national reconstruction. They'll want great things to happen, great swings in our culture. And yet the promise remains in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You have two groups. You have people who will persecute Christ or people who walk in the name of Christ. And you have people who will believe. And you have people who will Keep the word of Christ. So Matthew 21 is exposing this reality. It's marking this dynamic. This is what the Passion Week is sort of a, it's almost like a laboratory experiment of people who are saying, I want Christ, but I really don't want him. And then you have little, little glimmers of hope where people stand up for Christ in the midst of devolving rejection, highlighting hope. Bold reception with Christ at the same time as you have devolving rejection. So to highlight this section, it's five devolving rejections with five hopeful receptions of Christ. Devolving rejections and bold, hopeful receptions. The first two groups are seen in this account, and it's racketeers versus the innocents. Racketeers versus the innocents, verses 12 through 17, really. Let me read our section. 
Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out, In the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. All right, the two groups, racketeers racketeers and innocents, or versus the innocents, are found here in 12 through 14. The first section of this paragraph is Jesus cleaning house. Jesus cleans house. What does that mean? Well, holiness is coming and judgment is coming in the form of this cleansing of the temple. Jesus does as first order to inspect the temple in Jerusalem. He comes in, in his triumphal entry with thousands of people there, pilgrims who have come in for Passover. It's said by the historian Josephus that the population in Jerusalem expanded by five times its size during Passover. Everybody's coming in, kind of like the scene in Pentecost at Acts 2 where people were coming from different regions from around the Mediterranean known world. And when the Holy Spirit came, they spoke in different glossolalia, different languages, so everybody could understand each other because it was a world event. The nations were present at Pentecost. In the same way, the nations come, Jews who had left Jerusalem, had left the motherland, were coming home, making pilgrimage to offer their sacrifice and to worship Yahweh at the temple. That's what it was all about. It was a million people that were populating Jerusalem during this time. And just to put it in context, in the temple ground area where you would have Gentiles who are proselyte Jews, that was upwards to 100,000 people who were there in that section, that area. Think in terms of a, you know, SEC bowl conference and a college game, a massive championship game where you have 100,000 people in the stadium and they're rushing the floor. They're rushing the grounds at the end of the game because they've won. That's the context of the temple that Jesus was inspecting. Mark 11, verse 11 says, he entered Jerusalem And he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus inspected what was going on. Before he cleansed it, he wanted to evaluate it. He wanted to catch the spiritual temperature of God's people. He wanted to know where people really were. The crowds were out in droves during the triumphal entry in front of him and behind him, shouting Hosanna, shouting a blessing. And then Jesus goes right into that crowded region at the temple to get at the epicenter of where things really were. This scene is uh, it's kind of a part two to what had happened in John chapter two, where Jesus had pulled together a whip and had whipped people out of the temple earlier in the ministry and mission of Jesus. At the beginning of his three-year period, he cleansed the temple, and this is the second cleansing. This cleansing different from that one because Jesus gives an open rebuke and explanation after he does it, where John 2, verses 13 through 16, he doesn't. 
Some people believe that these are the same events. I guess they could be if John is sort of putting that one forward in his narrative to make a point earlier, but I think that they are distinct from each other. Let me say also up front that the problem with what happened in the temple was not a business problem. It was an exploitation problem. Um, Buying and selling um, within that setting isn't wrong per se, but they were exploiting the pilgrims. They were were, um, overcharging people and price gouging people as a racket, as a system to corrupt the temple. You have four different divisions of the temple, the court of Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Jews, and the holy of holies. And the holiness and and the outreach and the witness of the temple was being tainted by exploitation. Upwards to 6% was being um, charged for every lamb that was delivered. And the lamb, by the way, had to be a spotless lamb. It had to be perfect. Oh, you have your lamb? Well, you know, we're working through customs here and you need this lamb, not that lamb, and it'll be 6%. And oh, by the way, if you don't have exact change, we're going to have to charge you six more percent. One person in my pre-sermon meeting said, you know, this kind of reminds me of the upcoming fair that's uh, the event where you're, you know, exchanging money for tickets. I'll leave that um, to your own... um, Listening, First uh, Kings eight forty three was when the temple was originally dedicated. The temple went through kind of its own stages of um, of, of being built and being destroyed. The first temple was um, built hundreds of years earlier under the rule of Solomon, the son of David. In First Kings eight forty three, um, he's given the dedicatory prayer. He says, "Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you." In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as your, uh, and wait, as you do your people Israel and they, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So there was a witness of the temple first and foremost. It was a temple, as Jesus said later um, in, in Mark's explanation, that the temple is a temple to the nations. It was a witness to the nations, but it was also a witness of God's holiness. Second Chronicles 6, 12 through 14 expands this dedication. It says, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits, cubits wide and three cubits high and had set it in the court and stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The temple was both to solemnize God's witness of God's people and also project God's witness to the world. That's why you had the court of Gentiles. The compromise of Israel where they syncretized paganism into their worship system. They begin to worship false gods. They begin to build other altars and other temples to other um, false gods. Brought disaster. Jesus or the Lord sent um, the Babylonians in 586 to, to destroy the temple 
and to burn Jerusalem to the ground. The whole book of Lamentations is an accounting of the temple being burned to the ground. Remember, Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylonian captivity, 586. um, These are the 70 years of exiled um, captivity, Babylonian captivity of the Israelites. Then they returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel because the Persians allowed for that, and there was a second temple that was built. This was the second temple that was not as beautiful and as magnificent as before. But the the Zadok um, family, the Zadokite family, were the Bible-prescribed priests that took back the mantle of the sacrificial system. So everything was put back into place. And then ultimately, the temple was enlarged and beautified by Herod the Great, and it was, it was corrupted at that point. The Roman um, government took over what was happening. This is the temple that Jesus found that he's cleansing. The Roman government got involved. It mixed within the priesthood system an illegitimate line, the line of Annas, and one, one name in particular that was under the line of Annas as one of these um, priests is Caiaphas who oversaw Jesus' trial. All of that is just a lead-in to say you have the first temple, the second temple, you have the infusion of the Roman government, you have the tribe now or the priesthood of Annas that has corrupted the system. And temple business is funding things in a way that's corrupt. And the exchange of currency, if you came with other currency from foreign lands, you had to, the exchange rate was exorbitant and high and 6% more. It was the temple tax that Jesus alluded to in Matthew 17, where he said, just pay it anyway. You know, they were accusing Jesus of avoiding the temple tax, trying to indict him. And he said, just pay it anyway. Let's, let's um, leave it for now. But this should have been a temple that was, as Mark eleven seventeen said, a house of prayer for all the nations, and it was corrupt. Pilgrims would come. If they couldn't afford a lamb, they would just try to get a pigeon, but they were being caught up in the consumerism. And as you see in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought. So buyers and sellers were all part of this judgment and indictment. He drove them all out. And Jesus did it with God's wrath fury behind him. He, as God, very God, exuded wrath in this moment. I mean, if you watch movies about Jesus turning tables over and shaking money coins out and things like that, you're kind of underestimating the scene. Again, think of a stadium, a raucous stadium of 100,000 people. Jesus is taking that on single-handedly. There's no mention of other people helping him at this point. He's um, imbued with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, Samson-like power. And in Mark eleven sixteen, it says he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So he's staving off massive crowds with the power of God on his life. He being fully God, but fully man at the same time, exuding the power of the Holy Spirit. The drama behind this isn't something that we fully can comprehend but he was doing it. What was equally powerful in verse 13 is what he said. He conflated two scriptures, Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11 to say, my house shall be called a house of prayer and, but you make it a den of robbers. Think of like a den of snakes. I mean, this is, this is a dark place. It's kind of a spiritual gut check to check to think about how we're doing as a church. How would you measure our spiritual health and life in light of this? 
This is the corruption that uh, where um, the world's ideologies are influencing the people of God. Religious people will ignore Christ all in any way that they can in the context of worship. Um, Christ brings accountability. Christ demands um, a spiritual mindedness for you to worship. You can't worship Christ without the Holy Spirit. So places that gather in the name of God that don't have the Holy Spirit are filled with people who are really dead inside and they can't really see Christ. Static is on the line. They can't really hear from the Lord and the word. So when you gather for church, you have to find other ways to worship or believe that you're worshiping. So you do substitute um, things instead of true worship. People substitute all kinds of things within the church to feel the warm fuzzy that, where they think that that's the Holy Spirit. I'm inspired by nationalism. I'm inspired by social justice. I'm inspired by great heroes of American patriotism. I, I mean, people will do anything and everything to gather in the name of being inspired and call that God-centered worship when it really isn't. This is what Jesus is indicting. This is what Jesus is upending here. Church methodologies that ignore the word of God, where the word of God is not preached, are not God-centered gatherings. Jesus demands holiness for his worshipers. It's always been this way. This is the whole storyline of the Bible, by the way. It's a call to be separate from the world, to be separate from sin so you can truly worship. Think of the Garden of Eden. This is kind of the first sanctuary of God where Adam and Eve are there. They're sinless and then they sin and they, as image bearers of God, are excused, are, are required to leave the garden and there is an angel posted with a flaming sword to keep them out. You have the cleansing of the world itself where the sinfulness of man was exponentially growing through the years and generations of people and populating and by Genesis 6 it was time for the whole world the entire world to be cleansed of sinners and killed off only for Noah and his family to be spared in the ark which is a picture of separation and salvation in the ark kind of like how we are saved by grace in the cross. You have the cleansing of the wilderness from the children of God who had escaped slavery, enslavement, and they were worshiping a false calf, so they were cleansed. Their priesthood was slain. Uh, the temple was cleansed when strange fire was offered early on by Nadab and Abihu. The two first sons of Aaron in the priesthood offered strange fire and God sent fire to eradicate them. He cleansed the temple of Eli, um, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for robbing sacrifices. He cleansed the drunken sons of Samuel, who were, who were on the temple steps. He cleansed Israel twice um, of the shepherds, saying, a woe to the shepherd who'd give not their life for the sheep, with two exiles, two captivities, the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah, when the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel, Nehemiah had to go in and cleanse the priesthood of the temple um, priests that were corrupt in the temple furniture in Nehemiah 13.9. Well, the church is no different. We are the temple of God. Uh, the 120 who were in the upper room all had the pillar of the Holy Spirit over each one individually. You know what that means? That means that each of you as a believer is a temple of God with the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And you're called to be separate from paganism. You're called to be separate from the world. You're called to use your spiritual gift in holiness within the church. We're called to be holy as God is holy. We, um, as the church, stand out from the world. The early church was cleansed from Ananias and Sapphira who were struck dead for lying. Church discipline was put in place. 1 Corinthians 5 says that people were delivered outside of the church because of their sin. You have um, the call to forsake paganism of 1 Corinthians 6. You have the call for separation from the world in 2 Corinthians six seventeen. The call to holiness, 1 Peter 2, 5. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You have the call to avoid doctrines of demons and false spirits from 1 John chapter 4 and to keep your first love. Think of Revelation, the chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are talking about the seven churches and the call to not be hot nor cold. I mean, to be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. To remember your first love, to, to not excuse Jesus from the lampstands. He's in the midst of the churches with laser-like eyes looking into the hearts of those who are here. We're called to stay alive spiritually. This kind of purging brings blessing. If we want blessing in the church, it begins with the church. It begins with each of us individually being willing to repent. What happens when there's a house cleaning? Well, there's healing that comes. Christ brings healing. That's my second point under this main point. Christ brings a house cleaning, then he brings healing. Who comes? Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Who comes? The blind and the lame. Who comes to the church when it's pure, when it's authentic, when you can see Jesus for real there, where he's really present? It's not about anything but the Lord in the temple, in this aftermath, and it would have been a massive aftermath. I mean, all these people are upended, all this commercialism, all this, they called it the Annas Bazaar, like a Middle Eastern bazaar was shut down. And there's Jesus. And so who comes in? The blind and the lame. Those are the ones that are welcomed in. In Levitical law, the priesthood would forbid a priest who was blind or lame or had a blemish to enter into the Holy of Holies. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a, a man blind or lame. Leviticus 21 says that. Levitical law prohibited that kind of appearance, but Jesus, in Jesus, everything is resolved. He's the healer. He's the one that makes you whole. He's the reason for the temple. He's the reason for the sacrificial system. He's the answer to it all. And he's come there and he's brought holiness and he calls these people in. And I don't think it's just one or two. I think it's blind and lame and outsiders who are just pooling in. Remember, Peter and John healed the blind man at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, right at the entrance of the temple. These are the first arrivals that are coming. They're drawn to Jesus. They're drawn by his purity. They're drawn by his grace, and they came to the temple. And what does Jesus do? He heals them. He healed them. He makes them whole, doesn't turn them away. And he does so as, I think, a visual test to the chief priests and scribes. Again, you have the racketeers. You have those who are commercializing 
the temple of God. They're corrupting the point of prayer. They're making it a den of robbers and thievery. And by contrast, you have the deaf and the lame and the blind that are coming to be healed. They came into the temple and Jesus healed them. Here Jesus has upended everything and now he's providing healing. It was irrefutable. The power of God on Jesus was irrefutable. The whole place is just in a hushed silence and now people are coming in and he's healing them and the chief priests and scribes are standing as the opposite of the innocent. You have two groups, those who reject Christ and those who receive Christ. And that demarcation is clear at this point. Pharisees would have attributed the power on Jesus to Beelzebul, Matthew 12, 24, they did it there. They said he cast out demons by demonic power and Christ was indisputably powerful. Verse 15 says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. His power made them mad. One, it had shut down the system for them to gain money, but two, it had sort of made him the savior rather than them being the saviors. They wanted to be the saviors. They wanted to promise that things will get better. They wanted to promise that things will evolve. They wanted to promise betterment. And Jesus is shutting that promise down, saying, look, you need to get right with God. I mean, we win in the end. Things do get better. Jesus will come back. All the wrongs will be righted, but it comes with Christ not through religion, not through economics, not through scam artistry. Jesus is calling all that out. And he's saying, the point is me. I am the point of the temple. I am the one who is the picture of holiness and the picture of outreach to the world and the nations. He's the answer. In Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But that promise is fulfilled in Christ. He's drawing these people, he's healing these people, and he's, he's outing the false religion. He's outing the false promises of the Pharisees, and they are mad. This isn't righteous indignation. They are angry. You have a second group that's listed in verse 15. It's the children crying out in the temple. You have the lame and blind, and you have children. This is the innocence. You have those who are rejecting Christ and those who are standing up for Christ. And the lame and blind are standing up for Christ, and then guess what? The 12-year-olds are standing up for Christ. The children's ministry comes to the fore at this point. Thousands of kids would have been there for bar mitzvah, studying Torah, ready to take the next step, the very step that Jesus had taken before. When he was 12 years old, his parents couldn't find him. Where was he? He was in the temple. He was studying Torah. He was preparing for his bar mitzvah, Luke 2, verse 42. These kids, these children, they get it. Now, the crowds, as we have seen, had shouted Hosanna to the son of David, and they did it rightfully so. They said the right thing about Jesus. I'm not sure if their motive was completely pure. They wanted a political savior, but these 12-year-old boys got it. Jesus affirms this praise because they are seeing that Jesus is the Messiah. Only Messiah could have shut this place down. Only Messiah could have upended all this racketeering. Only Messiah could have quelled the nonsense 
He's going to do it again, by the way, in our society. He'll stop everything. He'll upend everything and put a stop to it. And then right here, you have this beautiful picture of believing children who are saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And they're saying it in the purest sense. They are the innocents. What did the chief priests and scribes say, verse 16? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Can you believe they're calling you Messiah? And Jesus said to them, yes, (laughs) yes, I hear I do. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? This psalm, Psalm 8, is a psalm about God. And Jesus is answering their incredulity, their their being incredulous about him with the fact that these young boys are fulfilling Psalm 8, verse 2, and they are praising me because they are praising the Messiah and they are praising God. Psalm 8 is about God. We read it earlier. It's about God, the majestic, high God. And Jesus is attributing that psalm and this promise to himself. Out of the mouth of infants, out of the mouth of sucklings, nursing babies, you have prepared praise. This is praise that is rightly attributed to me because Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. Haven't you read that? Don't you see that? Again, the indictment is where people can't connect the Bible to reality. That is the big disconnect in our world. They can't connect Jesus to what's going on. They won't do it. You don't want to do that if you want the world. It hurts. It spiritually, conscience-wise hurts to connect Jesus to worldliness. You don't want to do it. And so they want to just be incredulous. They want to get Jesus to deny this group of maybe a 1,000 12-year-olds that are going, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us. You are Lord. You are Messiah. That's what the children's ministry is doing. And they're going, we want this disconnected. This is painful. We're mad at this. Jesus is saying, no, this is utterly appropriate. You're not the saviors. He's the savior. Do you hear what they're saying? Yeah, I get what's bubbling forth. And it's bubbling forth as if from infants, What he's saying there is that an infant that praises God is doing it out in the most pure form, the purest form. And he's comparing, because an infant can't willfully sin. I mean, they're born depraved and they're going to cry and scream and do things, but they're not volitionally sinning. Okay, that's why I believe babies that die in infancy immediately go to heaven, because they're not willfully sinning. They're not committing acts and deeds against God. And I think that's absorbed under the cross, according to Jesus' promise to let the little children come to him. And he's saying that that's the level of purity that is in the hearts of these 12-year-olds on his behalf. He's contrasting the consumers. He's saying this is true worship. The Pharisees, in like manner, had tried to shut Jesus down when he was coming in on the foal of a donkey. I said, shut down this kind of praise. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, Luke 19, 40. All right, let's end in this way. What what makes our church a house of prayer? And we've already talked about this. I just want to have a family meeting for a minute. minute. What, What makes church good? 
Well, there's a lot of ways you can compare a lot of churches, and I'm not here to do that. There's a lot of good churches in Anchorage that you could go to in the valley, different places in the country, in the world. But you should evaluate each church in terms of God's word, first and foremost, because that's what will last. A church that's committed to God's word and measured by God's word will have vitality and will have life. A church that doesn't, won't. And when things get hard, it will either fracture or compromise. The temple's not this building. It's not this structure. I enjoy preaching here. I enjoy this pulpit. I enjoy preaching to you. I feel very familiar um, with you and you with me. You kind of know where I'm going. You probably can anticipate conclusions I'll make. I'm sure I repeat myself, but I'm hopefully just teaching truth. And if you didn't have a warm pulpit, then you shouldn't want to come. Um, the word of God has to be paramount at a church because that's God speaking to hearts that are energized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind and the heart and, and your brain can and mind can engage God and your conscience can respond to what the Holy Spirit wants you to respond to because that work of the word is going on. That's a mark of health in the church. Secondly, as individual temples within the temple... 1 Corinthians 6 says we're individually a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we're also living stones that make up the greater temple. Both images are at play. So you have an individual relationship with the Lord, but it also means that God has put in you a spiritual gift. So spiritual gifts should be active in a church that is healthy. That's a house of prayer. You're praying for one another, serving one another, giving to one another. You're teaching one another. You're admonishing one another. All these things should be happening. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, don't forsake the assembly as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You're prodding each other on to love and good deeds. You sing, you pray, you fellowship, you give, you teach, you hear preaching or you preach, you practice spiritual gifts, and you're called to be holy. God is making his church his perfect and spotless bride, so you should be refining in your own life's There should be sins that are bubbling to the surface that you're confessing to God privately and personally and telling each other in safe community settings where you can grow and be accountable therein. I do it all the time. You should do it all the time. Try it. You might like it. It hurts, but it's great. When you tell people you feel better, you realize you're not alone, you're not in this battle by yourself, sin is common to man, and you find redemption in the Lord together, not in each other. Finally, Gathering in a holy way is a witness. Um, missions is great, and it's important to make disciples. It's important to be a sending church, to be a praying church, but not to forget the mission of the church just by gathering unbelievers who come in or hear about us by reputation, hear us on the radio, see us online, know about us, visit. They should sense that God is here, and that should do, do something in their hearts, in terms of a witness, 1 Corinthians 14, 25 is where the unbeliever comes into the assembly and says, hmm, surely God is in this place. There's something different. And hopefully we will stand out as distinct and different in the world. I enjoy our church. It's not perfect, right? We're not perfect, but I, it's a healthy church. And that's a rare jewel in the community um, abroad. We're not the only healthy church and we're not perfect. But I want to be biblical and committed that way, and I hope you do too.